Welcome to the future of XYZ. I'm your host, Lisa Grelnick, principal and founder of LVG & Co., an independent strategy consultancy based in New York City. Through quick and candid conversations with innovative leaders, we aim to foster new thinking and explore big questions about where we are as a world and where we're going. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Future of XYZ. I am so honored uh, to welcome Seth Perlman to Future of XYZ. We're going to be speaking today about the future of charitable giving. Seth, welcome to Future of XYZ. Thank you, Lisa, for having me. It's a pleasure. And Seth, I mean, your background, you, you've been with your current firm uh, since 1985 as the senior partner. But Perlman and Perlman was founded by your father over 60 years ago, really looking at working with nonprofit organizations and social enterprises on the charitable giving, philanthropy, fundraising, compliance, regulation, governance type issues. Is this correct? That's correct. Uh, it started in 1959. Um, and my father was the uh, first state regulator of charitable activities in the United States. He started the New York Charities Bureau which at that time was under the Department of Social Services. It's now under the, the Attorney General's Office at Department of Law. Interesting. And, and so you obviously, I mean, it's, it, it goes without saying that there is deep expertise in this space. I, I think the first question that I'd love to ask just to ground listeners and viewers in what is charitable giving and what are we talking about here? Well, uh, charitable giving comes in many forms. Um, and typically, most people think of it as uh, donations to charitable organizations, but it also takes the form of uh, charitable commercial activities, grants from government grants. Um, uh, I mean, again, it, it comes in a lot of different forms sometimes. Uh, and recently, we're seeing all kinds of the personal property donations, including cryptocurrency. And I think we should talk about that at some point. Wow. Um, but essentially it's a donation or a gift to a charitable organization. And that's how and, it's defined under state laws. And a charitable organization in this case, I mean, we have, we're talking, you focus, you obviously, you have experience internationally. You work with a number of nonprofits organizations, especially in various healthcare type sectors. Um, but I also, I mean, the firm itself is focused on the U.S. and charitable giving in the U.S. is in many ways um, a tradition that is unique in the world. So charitable giving to nonprofits, and these can be operating in any state, they can be operating internationally, they can be operating federally, they can be operating in any kind of vertical, if you will, right? Um, how, how does your firm see things evolving currently with charitable giving? You know, let's just start kind of like back when you joined the firm in the 80s through to kind of COVID year two. Well, there's no question that charitable giving is evolving. Um, when I first started in this field, uh, fundraising, um, well, let me go back be even before that. Traditionally, charitable giving was within the purview of the very wealthy. Uh, most organizations survived on the largesse of wealthy individuals who were attempting to create some social good. That really changed significantly, actually, in the 60s and 70s with the advent of computerized databases. Mm. Um, 
with the ability of organizations to reach out more broadly to the public generally um, through the use of uh, data and lists. The dialing for dollars model. Well, it was more direct mail and it was primarily around the ability for organizations to reach out to find new supporters using direct response techniques. And typically the, the first direct response technique was traditional mail. Uh, and they were able to do that because they were able to acquire lists of potential donors or existing donors to organizations. That, that started to happen in the 60s. Mm -hmm. um, and database companies came into existence. The computer became uh, more common, the use of the computer. Uh, back in the 60s, those computers were supercomputers. Um, and anybody who had a data center needed to have a large facility that could cool these massive computers, which essentially had about the power that you might have in your, in your watch today. Right. right? <laughs> um, but at that point, they were massive machines, required massive cooling systems, but they could compile lists of individuals, mm -hmm. including their addresses, contact information, no emails at that point, obviously. Um, and it allowed organizations that did not have the support of wealthy individuals to reach out to the public general. Mm -hmm. uh, and as a result, in the 60s, we saw the, sort of the birth of the, the direct mail industry. Um, and that corresponded to a huge growth in the number of charitable organizations because a startup organization could now find people who wanted to support their cause. That makes a lot of sense. And, and I, I, I can see where the arc is going also when you have now social platforms and social media and things. But I want to pause for a second. I mean, the, the number, this is something that always overwhelms me. You know, I've just picked up at the point that we're recording this, a month basically of, of stored mail and the amount of, of material I'm still getting in the mail, plus on my phone, plus in email and plus on phone calls is pretty, pretty shocking. How many organizations, if you, I don't know if you have this, but how many organizations now exist in the U.S. who are nonprofit status or, or, or actually are fundraising? Well, I don't have the exact number, but I believe the IRS database contains a list of about 1.4 to 1.5 million 501c3 organizations. Now, those are just the charitable organizations. In addition, there are the C4 advocacy organizations. There are the C6 and C7 social clubs and trade associations. Uh, C-19 veterans groups. So we, can, we could safely say that there are absolutely close to probably one, certainly over 1.5 million since those are only the 501c3s, but there are probably closer to two plus million organizations in a country with 330 million people, including kids and people who can't give. I mean, this suggests that it is a highly competitive environment for charitable giving to attract donor money as well. Yeah, keep in mind though, amongst that number of, uh, let's say 1.5, 1.5 million uh, C3s, quite a few of those are private foundations. So they don't raise money. They are organizations that give money to public charities who are also 501 C3s. 
again, there are two there are two basic types of 501c3 organizations: private foundations and public charities. Uh, private foundations essentially support public charities. There are there are some hybrids. There's a, a private operating foundations which are essentially private foundations that conduct programs, but they're a pretty small minority. Uh, most of the organizations are made up of either private foundations or public charities. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and especially my, my mom actually spent her career in the private foundation side. Um, and, and so understanding again, the verticals, if we can say it, or the areas of specialization that these organizations can focus on, obviously, is, is very material. What's also material, and I think you guys look at it a lot and are very um, involved, is the way in which compliance requirements vary often quite substantially state by state. Um, can you just talk about that a little bit and what that, what challenges as well as perhaps opportunities that presents uh, in the charitable giving model for these organizations? Well, yeah, absolutely. So there are two primary regulatory bodies uh, in the United States is the Internal Revenue Service. And then there are the state charitable regulatory offices. Uh, the IRS has not been a significant player uh, in the last decade or so. Uh, their resources have been significantly restrained, although they do sort of set the tone for what entities uh, will be allowed to raise tax-deductible contributions. But the real regulatory oversight occurs at the state level. Um, there are approximately 43 of the 50 states that have um, departments within the state dedicated to regulating charitable activities. And, and again, New York was the first one to do that. Uh, although it wasn't the first state to have a law in the area, that was New Hampshire. But New York was the first state to establish an actual department to oversee charitable activities. So an organization that is operating nationally has to contend with essentially 43 state regulatory regimes, which means there are seven states or so out there that don't have a, a, a significant regulatory regime or don't have a department within that state whose job it is to oversee charitable activities. But again, there's 43 states that do, some are much more aggressive than others, and it might surprise you to know which states are the most aggressive, uh, I mean, obviously, you would you would expect that New York and California would be uh, the most aggressive, but then you also see uh, states like Utah and Mississippi and South Carolina, states that you might not expect, have pretty significant and aggressive regulatory enforcement. And and what is the reason for? I mean, what what is what is the? I guess the question in my mind's eye is A, why would one state have one thing versus another? What is the benefit to the state? And also then therefore your clients, the social enterprises and nonprofits themselves, how does this impact where they choose to do business, to, to fundraise, et cetera? Well, so in addition to the fundraising regulation, uh, each state has a nonprofit corporation laws. Um, and that exists in, in all states. Um, some states have very significant uh, state corporation, nonprofit corporation laws that can be difficult to navigate. Um, for instance, New York is, uh, has a particularly difficult regulatory regime 
for organizations that want to form in New York, which as a result causes most organizations to form in states like Delaware, Nevada, right. and so forth. Uh, Delaware being the most prominent. Um, we typically advise our clients to form in Delaware if at all possible. Um, and on, then layered on top of that is you had the state solicitation uh, regulatory regime. Um, and that again, varies state by state. So th th there's a sort of a two parts to this. One is the incorporation. Where do you want to incorporate? Yeah. Uh, and what state's law do you want to be subject to in terms of your governance and um, at, you know, how you deal with your assets and so forth. Uh, and then the second part is if you're going to be raising funds, if you're going to be asking the public to make a, a gift to your organization, you now also have to deal with the state's regulatory fundraising regime. Yeah. So in other words, you can be incorporated in the state of Delaware, uh, but if you're raising money nationally, you're dealing with 43 state offices. Yeah, which is, which is quite complex because I would imagine most organizations, unless they're local, and even some local organizations are, are, are fundraising across state lines. I mean, and that is becoming, I, I think it leads to an interesting question, which is, you know, I think online platforms, right? And the call to action through social media as well, probably is making this even more complex because no longer is it just direct mail or door to door or dial for dollars. It is actually becomes... I would say national, but certainly even international in outreach. How are you seeing kind of the different fundraising platforms and, and marketing tools, if you will, uh, impacting the space of, of charitable giving? Uh, well, that's really interesting. Uh, so the states, the state regulatory agencies were starting to wrestle in the late 90s with um, new fundraising computerized online techniques. Um, and trying to figure out how to regulate that activity. In 2000, um, each year, the National Association of State Charity Officers and National Association of Attorneys General have an annual meeting. In 2000, they had their meeting in Charleston, South Carolina, and they came up with what uh, they called the Charleston Principles to try to deal with this new online fundraising that they were seeing, becoming much more ubiquitous. Uh, and they, they published what's called the Charleston Principles. And essentially, it tries to deal with what or our organizations subject to your state's jurisdiction if their activity is strictly online. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was sort of the first part of having to deal with a lot of these changes that are being um, created and evolving as a result of the digital revolution. Um, and that was an interesting exercise, and it's never been uh, codified in law, although it's been pretty much adopted by most states. Mm -hmm. So that if you have an online presence and you have a donate now button on your, on your website, you now have to register in the 39 states plus a district of Columbia that require a registration filing. Um, that seemed to be a, a bit of a, an excess burden for small organizations, especially who are operating locally. You've got a, a homeless shelter operating out of Baltimore, uh, do you need to register in California because you have an online presence? Um, so and they came up with the, the what was the answer? Well, they came up with the Charleston principles that says if you do not specifically aim your activities at the citizens of a, a specific state, 
or have substantial activities within that state, or otherwise would be required to register because of other activities, then you're not subject to the jurisdiction of that state. The problem is, what are the thresholds? So for example, um, you're the, uh, say, um, the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Um, and you have a, a fairly robust website and you have a, a donate now button on your on that website. Um, and you're receiving contributions from people around the country. Um, we're interested in saving the Chesapeake Bay. Good cause, obviously. Uh, well, well, clearly you're aiming your activities of the citizens of the states of Maryland and Delaware. Virginia, possibly. Surrounding areas, yep. Around the states that are contiguous to the, the, the bay. But there are also tributaries that go into Pennsylvania as far as- And people who have deep love who visited or people, there right. are lots of reasons people like to give. Right. So you know that you've got these states that, that border the, the bay and clearly you're in the activities that, that those folks. But if you have contributors from Colorado or uh, California, uh, do you need to register in Colorado and California? So essentially what the Charleston principles say, if you don't have substantial activity or a substantial number of donors from Colorado and California, then you're not required to register in those states. The problem has been, what is a substantial amount of activity? What does a substantial number of contributors mean? Uh, and there's no bright line test there. You know, we typically tell organizations, if you don't have more than 50 donors or raise uh, $25,000, um, then you're not likely to be subject to the jurisdiction of that state. But that number varies. And there are only a few states have actually come out and said what that number is. And that, that could be different. Some states it's 50,000, some states it's 25. It's so it's still a bit confusing. It, well, it's very confusing, but it's also, I mean, I, I'm, I'm just listening and I'm thinking like one of the things about the U.S. that is so unique versus other places in the world it is in fact that it is beneficial if you are either a corporation or individual, right, to give a certain portion of money away because you get a tax deduction. And as the stock market rises, as wealth among, is accumulated among the top, you know, let's say 1%, but certainly the, the top 5% in this country increasingly, one would imagine that charitable giving is going to grow along in proportion or some proportion. I think one of the things that you've just mentioned that's interesting is where people are going to be getting their money, where organizations are gonna be getting their, their, their money from. And if you see this as something that is becoming easier or harder, I think you had mentioned before um, to me that it's close to $472 billion that US you know, is in charitable giving in the US annually, or maybe in like 2020, and that's growing. How do we see, you know, given the regulatory environment, given the compliance complexity, how do you see yet given the wealth increase and the need as well for charitable giving, how do you kind of anticipate the future of charitable giving evolving? Well, that's a pretty big question, Lisa, but I, I think that what we're seeing is uh, more digital innovation, certainly, uh, and the rise of platforms uh, where uh, individuals can go to one spot and make a contribution to uh, a mo number of different organizations. Um, and the states have been really wrestling with that as a, as a sector. And there's been actually a, a development in that area. California recently enacted the first platform registration regime for those platforms 
that provide uh, a place for donors to go and support any number of different organizations. Um, and so, uh, and a lot of times this has been called the PayPal bill, because PayPal was one of the first to do that, but you're seeing it on Facebook and Amazon and numbers of other different kinds of platforms that have been created just to support numerous charities or different types of charitable causes. Um, and the big question was, you know, how do those, where do those platforms fit within the regulatory scheme? Uh, and that was very difficult for a, a lot of these companies uh, to, to sort of navigate and figure out. So California's platform registration regime was a bit of a welcome development in that it started to provide some clarity. Um, we have some issues with exactly how it was constructed, but I think it's a start and we'll start to see that uh, sort of spread across the country is, is my prediction. Um, and, you know, the states will continue, as will the federal government, to wrestle with all kinds of innovation in the charitable fundraising space, which will also bleed over into the sort of social venture benefit corporation space as well. Um, and you're seeing this in, in sort of the crowdfunding for startup, new startup companies, and how are those regulated? Mm -hmm. um, the SEC has been struggling with that issue. Uh, you know, are, are these uh, offerings fall within the SEC uh, regulatory guidelines for startup companies? Um, and then you're also seeing uh, a real rise in cause marketing. Yes. Uh, and sort of the intersection between the for-profit and nonprofit world. Um, Which is, of course, where I play, right? And 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 sure. find this very interesting. I, I'm curious as we as as a final question as we wrap up, Seth. Um, this interesting conversation, both about where charitable giving is today in the U.S., but also where we think the future of it is going. I think this intersection between public and private, right, and nonprofit and for-profit entities is in many ways the, the, the future. I, I'm curious as a closing question on your uh, take on, on some of the opportunities, but also the challenges that that presents. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. There is, uh, there's no doubt that there is a greater intersection between the for-profit and nonprofit sectors. We're seeing it uh, take uh, form in, in a, a lot of different areas. Um, Nonprofits are starting to invest their endowment assets in, in mission-related companies. Uh, For-profit companies are forming with a, a, a underlying mission to support charitable causes. Um, For-profits and nonprofits are forming more and more joint ventures yep. to commercialize discoveries in, in the health area and in a number of different areas. Um, there is some, some, there are some areas and issues of concern here. Um, many philanthropy should not and does not necessarily exist to create some kind of a commercial benefit or a private benefit. I mean, one of the, the primary rules, the golden rule behind uh, nonprofits, uh, especially in the 501c3 area, is the prohibition against private enormous or private benefit. Um, so that always becomes, that's always an issue that comes into play 
when you have this intersection between for-profit and nonprofit world. We work a lot with social ventures, yep. forum that are mission-based, uh, and a lot of states have enacted uh, benefit corporation laws, which yep. allow uh, for-profit companies to form with uh, a, some underlying mission that sort of steps along and is uh, has the same relative importance as the profit motive. Um, but you still have the issues of shareholder primacy rules that have existed for a long time, especially in Delaware, where a lot of these groups form. Corporation. Um, so this it's a departure that I think is evolving. And we'll see some diminishment of the shareholder primacy rule because it will be invaded by mission-based primacy yeah. as well. And so you have this sort of co-primacy. So it's actually a really exciting time. It sounds like it's a uh, very interesting time, especially in the legal space where these rules, regulations, policies are influenced and created. So, I mean, it sounds to me like the future of charitable giving, besides the fact that we anticipate it continuing to grow for a whole bunch of reasons based on need as well as capital availability, but also this intersection um, of the for-profit and not-for-profit uh, and how that's going to be, again, regulated, complied by, et cetera, governed, as, as we've talked about in the beginning that Perlman and Perlman Attorneys at Law really focuses on. Yeah, I mean, I think traditional fundraising will continue to exist and will be extremely important and remain extremely important. But there will be a, a uh, more of a, uh, a bent towards uh, commercializing activities, finding ways for nonprofits to to develop sustainable sources of revenue, which has always been an issue in the nonprofit sector. Absolutely. And that, the key to that might be in the for-profit sector. Um, that's a nice and hopeful way of ending. I certainly uh, would love to reprise this at some point, Seth, and see where it all nets out. Um, thank you so much for joining us on Future of XYZ today. Lisa, thank you for having me. It's great. Seth Perlman, uh, attorney focused on nonprofit uh, and social enterprise uh law thank you uh everyone for listening for watching if you don't already subscribe to future of xyz do so on youtube or anywhere you get your podcast and make sure to follow us on instagram at future of xyz seth thank you again happy new year may it be a good one for all charitable giving let's hope for a better 2022 let's Take thanks care. so much thank you Thanks for listening to the Future of XYZ. If you like what you've been hearing, please follow Lisa Grelnick on LinkedIn. Visit future-of.xyz or subscribe to the Future of XYZ podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.